Welcome to the Birds FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to a conversation with Mark Baker. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots, and today is Thursday, April 21st in the year 2022. Tonight we have a very special interview. Mark Baker of Baker's Green Acres is coming on here just a minute. Mark is an amazing farmer and he has fought like crazy to keep his farm active and going and has won against the state of Michigan. And he's uh, he's what we would qualify as a small farmer, but a very productive one, very active in the farming space and just a great honor to have him on the show. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Before we begin, remember to keep your sleep up Your sleep is critical in this day, and to do that, you need great products to have your sleep up, and that means things like pillows and sheets and comforters and great sleepwear and great slippers for the morning, and where do you find those? You find those at MyPillow.com, and in fact, Bards Nation has its own landing page at MyPillow, so head on over to MyPillow.com forward slash Bards. And there you're going to find a whole assortment of great things that are on sale, the featured sales and the great products that are being pushed right now with amazing savings. Like the Giza cotton sheets are down 60% off. And we have as well the MyPillow down as low as 1998. That's the MyPillow classic. There's also the new Giza cotton pillow. There's comforters. There's mattress toppers, mattresses. There's sleepwear for men and women. There's all the, there's the MyPillow slippers, which we know from the slipper revolution. We had a Bards Fest, 50% off on those. Amazing savings. So if you use your Bards code, B-A-R-D-S, you're going to take advantage of those great savings. And right now when you use the Bards code, you're also going to get a copy of Mike Lindell's book, which is his story from addict to one of America's greatest CEOs. You can use your Bards code on anywhere on the MyPillow site, the Frank Speech site, and the MyStore site. So head on over to MyPillow.com forward slash bards use your promo code bards you'll get amazing savings you're going to get amazing service from a great company and if you want to speak to a real human being you can call a patriot pillow counselor at 800-975-2939 800-975-2939 use your promo code bards and you're in the money they're going to get you set up and you're not going to have a sleep problem ever again so again mypillow.com forward slash bards promo code bards Okay, Patriots, so we're going to start this again. And what we have is a great uh, interview tonight. It's going to be an hour and nine minutes with Mark Baker. We're going to cover a lot of topics, a lot of great perspectives on farming. It isn't just of note that yet another plant, processing plant, went up in flames today as a plane crashed into the General Mills plant in Covington. And I swear, I keep reading this. People are saying, this is suspicious. This isn't suspicious. This is conspiratorial attack on America's food infrastructure. So if ever before it is a push to get people into agriculture, start growing your food and stocking up, get into it. Because they're taking this famine thing 
seriously, they want the famine to be the word of the day in America. And Americans have never experienced food shortage, but we're heading into that fast and furiously. Remember, this is a war and a war on our food supply, but it's they consider it their food supply. And what they want to do is push you into a place where anything you buy, they are printing, 3D printing and, and making in labs. That's the whole fourth industrial revolution. Show me one politician, one person out here that says that they don't want the fourth industrial revolution because they're all in the same pocket of the same banksters. They're all pushing for it, whether it's 5G, whether it's the Vax, whatever it is. And by the way, 3D printed food is all part of the fourth industrial revolution, trying to get you not to eat meat. They're going to grow the protein. You should listen to this disgusting stuff on the WEF. They want to take cells from a cow and put it in a Petri dish and grow grow the meat that so it's meat-like substances that you'll eat, but you won't know the difference. Not doing it. You can almost guarantee by next year any mainstream restaurant that's out here is going to, and I mean like the, the fast food joints and the chain restaurants, you can almost bet that by next year a lot of them will be carrying this grown agri, or this lab-grown food. It's horrible. But we've got to get back to basics, Back going back to go forward. We've got to get back to basics and start reclaiming the domain of our food and to retake our sovereignty. So with that, and without further ado, let me introduce to you Mark Baker. Patriots, I'm really honored today to have Mark Baker on from Baker's Green Acres. And just an, an amazing individual who's had an amazing fight and won against his state. He's, he's, uh, he gets his hands dirty and really is leading in so many ways uh, a revolution of mindset on getting control back in our lives through our food. So, Mark, welcome to the show today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on, Scott. I'm, I'm doing really good. How are you doing today? I'm great. So, Mark, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and just kind of get, let the audience get to know you a little bit. Okay, well, uh, I I'm, I just turned 62 years old. I uh, retired from the Air Force in 2004. Uh, after 20 years, I moved to northern Michigan, where my wife is from, and I had this idea that I wanted to be a farmer. And a lot of that came from I was just really sick of the whole war machine. I was sick of the whole death business. I uh, experienced kind of a dichotomy when I was active duty. I would come in, and we had a little 13-acre piece of property, and it was, we kind of joked around about it being our little farm. We had a couple of goats, and we had some steers and uh, some pigs. You know, it evolved. It started out with uh, baby chicks coming home with me from work. And uh, then when I retired, it was what I wanted to do. I didn't want the, the contractor life. I didn't want any of that. So we came here. We set this place up. Looking back on it, there was so much that I didn't know. And I thought that farming was just, a, just something that came naturally, that you would just do it. And we had a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, but we... We were organized, and my family was on board. At the time we moved here, we had five children, and uh, my wife's a real hard worker. And we followed some 
farmers that uh, were would be called uh, sustainable farmers or organic organic farmers, and we kind of followed their lead, and we wound up getting quite a few customers, restaurants, and retail stores, and um, we were working really hard just to keep above above water. And then uh, in 2011, so we're into it quite a ways, uh, spending a lot of money on fuel, spending a lot of money on electricity, you know, a lot of mistakes we were paying for. Uh, the state of Michigan, specifically the Department of Natural Resources, uh, in concert with the Department of Agriculture, came out with what they called a de declaratory ruling. So they they just kind of created a document, and the document pretty much threatens farmers that if you have a pig on your property that has one of nine characteristics that they give, um, then, then you are in violation of their rule and uh, you could be fined up to $10,000 per animal. And uh, the, the wording of it was suspect to me, having been in the military, you know, they use the word could and up to. And so I questioned them on it. And here I was, a retired GI, and uh, I thought we were on the same team. You know, they were uniform wearers and oath takers. But when I questioned the Department of Agriculture, Department of Natural Resources, they pretty much slapped me down like I was a petulant child and said, you'll do what we tell you to do or this will happen. So uh, it, it progressed. I got involved with uh, a group of other farmers who were upset about this. And when it came down to it, me and Jill had to decide what we were going to do. Like we were either going to allow these organizations to tell us what we could have on our farms or not. And we knew that fighting it was going to be treacherous. And we didn't know a lot of the, the legal ramifications. We'd never been involved with that. You know, I was just a a run-of-the-mill GI doing what I was doing for the Air Force. And so it got real really quick, and they said that they would arrest me, that my children would most likely go into state custody, and they leveled a fine against us of $700,000. It was, I had 70 pigs at the time, and it was, they said, $10,000 per pig. And, uh, you know, so we had a lawyer, and that didn't really go that well. So we, we did a lot of searching on our, on our own, and basically it went on for three years. There was a lot of threats and intimidation from the state. Uh, they came on my property illegally and did an illegal search. Um, I, it's a long story, but it culminated in 2014 in the state moving for dismissal. So they, they created all this problem. They put most of the farmers who were raising pigs out of business. 
and when and, and then they moved for dismissal at the 11th hour and they said we no longer have a problem with mark baker's picks like they had a big problem but then overnight they no longer had a problem so this was a man by the name of bill shooty who was the attorney general who was actually the point man on this and through the process i realized hey he actually works for me because he took an oath to protect my constitutional rights and my animals clearly fall under the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which says that my life, liberty, and property is protected under due process of law. And they had no law. They had a regulation that they created. Right? So if they had done this, if they had gotten away with this, and, and this is important for the audience to understand, there was just... There was one family that stood up and just said, no, we won't do it. And they really don't know what to do with that. But had we not done that, there would not be a pig on pasture in Michigan, probably the entire Midwest, because Michigan is sort of a test case for this whole thing, this type of thing. And... Um, so we stood up to them and uh, we pulled that sword of the U.S. Constitution, uh, took it into court with us against our lawyers' wishes, and had a lot of people came into court with us. We filled the courtroom several times. I mean, it wasn't just me. It was the American people kind of rallied around us, and there was a lot of donations that came in. We could have never done it without that because it's a real expensive process. So uh, what they do is they use, you know, the attorney general, Bill Schutte, he had three lawyers assigned to my case to, you know, harass us and intimidate us, sending us letters all the time, sending our neighbors letters, sending my parents-in-law letters. Uh, my sheriff was useless at the time. He did not understand his oath of office. Um, so it was just really one family and me and Jill, actually, it was me and Jill that just said, no, we won't do it. And they made the threats, and we didn't think they could pull it off. We thought that if they did arrest us, then it would look really bad, and they didn't want to look any worse than they did. So uh, we prevailed, but it really didn't end there because I have a butcher shop on this farm that was licensed, and that's a key word these days, we were licensed through the Department of Agriculture to be a, a food, <coughs> excuse me, service facility. <clears throat> so uh, supposedly once a year they would come in and inspect it and see if we were doing things right, like if we had screens on the windows and didn't have any burned out light bulbs or anything like that, which, you know, I really didn't need their help in that, but without their license, I couldn't sell to restaurants. So they never really did inspect us, uh, but I did send them a check every year for the license. And then after we won the case, they didn't send the license anymore. And we questioned them on that, and they said, well, we need to come and inspect your property now. And I said, well, that's kind of interesting. You haven't done it in 14 years. Why now? And, and this is important to the story. 
And I knew that they were going to come and they were going to just do a really thorough inspection and they would find something to close down our business. You know, like they, they did a lot of tactics like that. <clears throat> and so I held them off. I, I told them not today and things like that. There's a lot of interesting uh, storyline in that too. Maybe we can talk about later, but um, finally it was time for me to pay my license again. And oddly enough, it was Kira that talked to me on the phone. She said, maybe, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should not have a license because if you don't have a license, then you haven't agreed to anything and you'll fall back to your bill of rights position and they'll be held. And that made a lot of sense to me. And so I thought, well, I'll try it. So I let the license lapse and they showed up one day after the license lapsed. It was uh, somewhere around April. And, uh, you know, the gender confused people from the Department of Agriculture, they have a lot of them, um, tried to get things going with me and tried to start a, a pushing match. Uh, state police, luckily, were with them. They always brought the state police to intimidate. But, you know, like the state police, a lot of them are like me and you. They're GIs. And I had instant rapport with them. And they were like, why are we here? You know, the state police were actually pretty good guys. I don't know about their leadership, but uh, so since we let the license go, I have fallen back under the blanket of protection of the Bill of Rights, the U.S. Constitution, and I have had no problems since then. They cannot come up my driveway unless I invite them or they have a warrant. But to get a warrant, I have to do something illegal which means it has to be against the law, not against their regulations, but against the law. Um, it's They've done a really good job of confusing people when it comes to their regulations being law. They will, they will say it's the law, but it isn't the law. The law has to be you know, signed into law by the governor and there's a big process getting there. And if a law isn't consistent with my Bill of Rights, then I'm not I'm not doing it. And they kind of know by now that, you know, I'm a button pusher and I will I will push that button. And uh, so. From there, uh, there was a point where I said, you know what, let's close this farm down and go someplace better. And we went and looked around. We went out to the East Coast. I'm from there. And, you know, it's the same everywhere. Uh, and we came back to the farm and uh, actually tried to put it up for sale. And that door closed pretty abruptly. It happened twice, actually, it closed on us. And so we felt like we were supposed to stay here because some of my kids are settled here. That was the initial reason. But then eventually we saw that there's a real need for leadership in the small community, the small farms community. And that, that entails like education, um, sort of like being a senior NCO with a bunch of junior people, you know, you, you have to, you can't put a gun in a guy's hand and say, okay, you're a soldier now. I mean, that works in Ukraine, but it doesn't work in, in real life. It just, you just wind up with a bunch of dead people. 
But it's the same thing with farming. You can't put a shovel in a guy's hand and say, okay, you're not, now you're a farmer. You have to you have to train them. You have to show them. You have to help them to get their attitude in line with this creation that we live in, that it does work pretty well. And all we really do is steward it and, and uh, you know, guide it a little bit. So uh, shortly after, it would have been probably just uh, about five years ago, we got serious about a program of of training people, and it's become somewhat the centerpiece of the farm is training. So we host people to the farm and we show them how to do things like process animals, uh, like get a garden started, like composting, uh, how to graze cattle, um, how to feed pigs, how to fence, a lot of real basic things. And in the years that have gone by, we've we've had this large group of qualified and uh, motivated and passionate people come to come to us and become part of our our tribe. And we even started up a Facebook group called the Anyone Can Farm Tribe. <laughs> And uh, there's a lot of people in there, and it's become more than just a, a how-to place. It's it's a it's a large group of people that are willing to help each other, whether that need be assemble at somebody's farm, and uh, stare down regulators, the parasite class I call them, or. Uh, you know, come around people when they have a barn that goes down or something else happens, some other tragedy or a child is lost or something like that. So it's really people are just we didn't we didn't we didn't create it. We didn't form these people. They they were they came off the shelf with these attributes. We've just coalesced them somewhat. And then uh, other people like you have. uh you know, we, we're connected in a lot of ways, and now we're formally connecting up. I've been listening to you for years, and I've actually turned a lot of people around here. My whole tribe has turned on to Bards. Um, and that's, I, that's how we got hooked up, actually. It's somebody that I turned on. Actually, I turned Kira on to you, and then she turned you on to me. And same thing with the resist, resistance chicks. I met them uh, many years ago and turned them on to Bards. But... So that's it in a in a nutshell. Well, that's a great story, and I, I I love the story too because it's one of the things that you've done in this fight is you've leveraged the Fifth Amendment among other things. But we don't typically think of the Fifth Amendment other than silence when there people say they take the Fifth, right? Correct. And you've kind of put some new life into the power of that amendment. How did you come across that, Mark? Because that's a it's real interesting how much you've opened up the capacity and awareness with the Fifth Amendment. Well, I enlisted five times. I took an I took an oath of enlistment five times in my twenty years in the military. <clears throat> and uh, when we got into the struggle, I would sit with lawyers, and they would talk about 
well, the state's argument is capricious, they would say, or it is void for vagueness. And having come out of the military, I, I always went back to when we had to decide whether we were going to keep a guy or let a guy go, or I had to decide whether something I was done, I had done was right or wrong. We would go to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and we knew that that was the counterpart to the U.S. Constitution, but it was designed for us because we were a special mission type group of people. And so I started looking at the Constitution. And <clears throat> when I would bring it up to lawyers and lobbyists, they'd get a funny look on their face. They would, my lawyer, one of them, I, I went through three of them. I fired all three of them, actually. Um, they would say, if you bring in that, if you bring that into the court, I'm walking out. Like they, they did not want that in a court of law. They didn't want the U.S. Constitution in a court of law. <clears throat> and I started to realize that the lawyer had a relationship with the judge, and my lawyer that I was paying actually had a pretty good relationship with the attorney general's lawyers. And so I thought, there's something going on here. You know, we're, we're, we're being scammed here, you know. So I started looking at it more closely, and when I would bring up the Fifth Amendment, as I had read through it myself, to my lawyer, uh, I'd get a funny reaction. And so I knew I was on to something. I, I, I'm, one, I'm one male sibling. I had five sisters, so I learned how to read body language pretty good. You know, when I would say something and they would cringe, you know, I knew something was up. So I, I learned that really early. And uh, then when the, the state moved for a dismissal, I, I kept hearing Fifth Amendment talk. And so I looked into it more closely and uh, I knew something was there. And then since then, we used it. We actually pulled that sword. I mean, you can carry the Fifth Amendment round in your shirt pocket all you want, but unless you pull that baby out and hit the press the test button, you'll never know if it's going to work. And a lot of regulators, a lot of government type people, I'm not anti-government, I'm just, I'm just anti-parasite, you know. Um, we, we don't have to have parasites in government. We could have good people serving in government. And I believe we will. You know, I believe we will. I think we're at the, the beginning of something new that's, that's coming on. And you'll have good people that will say, hey, I owe it to this country to go and serve for four years and you know, lend my expertise to keeping this thing running straight. But um, we've had several incidents of tribe people who ran into scuffs with regulators and then we would use the Fifth Amendment, and it works every single time. Um, there is another component to it, uh, and this started, well, uh, you and I talked before, and I asked you if you knew Jerry Boykin, and you knew of him. Jerry Boykin, for the listeners, is he was the commanding officer uh, that was in charge of the Black Hawk Down incident. And not that that was a good incident or a victory or anything, but he did swim out of it. He did the best he could. It was a terrible situation. But 
I got to listen to him speak, and it just so happens I was sitting very close to the podium. I knew of him. I knew of Delta Force, and I knew the things that he'd accomplished in his life. And in this briefing, uh, somebody from behind me said, sir, what is the solution to all these problems that we're facing as a society? And he looked me dead in the eye, and he knew the struggle that I had been through, and he said, oath of office, just like that. He pointed at me. He's, uh, he's an older man, but this was back in 15. But I, I, I sat up straight in my chair, you know. He's quite a, quite a man. So um, I knew there was something there. Now, what happens is people... See, I took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic. So that means if some person from, say, Department of Agriculture thwarts my constitutional rights with some other set of rules, they have become an enemy of that document. And it is my job to focus in on them and do what needs to be done to rectify that situation. But that person also has taken an oath to support and defend. I'm protect and defend. Usually state workers are support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Actually, on behalf of me, because they are a servant of me, the public. So when they raise their right hand and they take that oath as a term of employment, let's say you're a food inspector, your first responsibility is the constitutional rights of the people of the state. So they've, they've made a, an oath and it's a term of employment, right? It's sort of like an employee's handbook if you're a state employee. They have to do it. It's state law. So if they violate that, they're an easy target for a lawsuit. And we found out that suing the Department of Natural Resources, that's a bad thing to do because they have infinite money, my money, to, uh, to defend themselves. What you have to do in some ways is you have to become a sheepdog. Like these, the parasite class, Department of Agriculture, they're definitely parasites, in my opinion. They per, they've, they're doing nothing. Here, the president's come out and said, we have a food shortage looming on the horizon. And have you heard the Department of Agriculture say, we've got a solution? No, no, they're in on it. Uh, so they, they're definitely the parasite class. I, I know it's harsh, but I've dealt with them a lot. And they produce nothing, right? They just live off the money that I pay in taxes off of what I produce, right? But when you you act like the sheepdog and there's a group of wolves, a small group of wolves, you can't really go after that whole group of wolves. You have to single one out. You single one out and you level suit against them for violation of their oath of office. And you don't wanna single out the highest paid guy you single out the lowest paid guy because then that guy has to secure his own lawyer and he's kind of on his own, right? And so then it's citizen against citizen and you're going to drag him into court. Will you win? I don't know. It depends if the judge is a constitutionalist. You would think they would be, but they're not. 
But still, that guy will have to get a lawyer and he will have to appear before God and country and make his case of why he violated your constitutional rights. And they don't like that. They are bureaucrats. They like to do the nine to five, four days a week. And being sued is something they don't think should happen. Uh, but we've never done it. We, all, we have, all we've done, Scott, is threaten it. And it's just a letter that goes to the individual and says, we're planning on taking your net worth away from you. And then your kids can find a new place to sleep. That's just that's exactly what they did to me. They threatened me with, you know, the loss of my residence, the loss of my freedom, the loss of my children. And they do that stuff all the time. And most times people people we've become afraid of our government. And, you know, that is so wrong. Thomas Jefferson said, when the people fear the government, you have tyranny. When the government fears the people, you have liberty. And it is about time in this new era that we're, we're going into, those of us that have been trounced by these people, and there's a lot of us, want scalps. We're tired of them running ruckshaw over our beautiful country. And so I, for one, I, I didn't take it lying down, and I'm not going to take it lying down from here on out. Um, they're there to serve us, and they are the problem. They are the problem. They're the ones that are creating this food shortage that you talked about yesterday and the day before. Day before is real. And our Department of Agriculture on the national level, the USDA, and on the state levels have no answers. So why are they drawing a paycheck then? Isn't that their wheelhouse? And I, I know they're not going to. I know they're not going to. Like, they, they never do have any answers for anything. So that's really the good news. So we, and we are legion, need to at this point step up and say, okay, we can do this. Now, you may not know how to do this yet, but if you say, I'm willing to do this, it's just like being in the military. You didn't know how to do any of the stuff you learned how to do but you were trained. And so now is the time for us to look to each other and train each other to do these things. And that way, when they come out and say food shortage, we'll just kind of like shrug our shoulders and say, not in my house there isn't. You know, I, I think in the new world that's coming, news agencies and government agencies that work in tandem are gonna be irrelevant. I don't think we need to lock them all up. I think we just need to ignore them and and look to each other for what is real, what what is factual. You know, like so much, so many of the um, celebrities and the news people and the politicians, they're not real people. So I, I really can't even take what they say seriously anymore. But when I go out the back door of my house, my animals are real. My systems that I put in place that are regenerative, and it's, it's a miracle when you see this happen before you. I don't have to do NPK into my property. It's like compost is the magic bean, you know, when it comes to this. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at, but... <clears throat> I'll answer any questions you got.
you've heard me talk a lot, and I, I have kind of two things that I've I push on uh, hard. One is to your point you just made is that county by county by principle is a breakaway economy and a breakaway society, which resets us back to the Constitution. So we're going to have to take that approach because this behemoth of this parasite class is has grown like any infection and any parasitic infection. And the only way to get rid of them is to basically ignore them and then just cut off their lifeblood, which is their salary over time. That is part and parcel with this crisis that we're facing now, which is food. And it's real. It's real on a national level on this structure of a centralized corporate agriculture model with centralized distribution chains. But it's not real on a distributed distribution system where individuals start taking power of their food. Hence my push regularly about Patriot Gardens, which is a version of Victory Gardens. What's your thought on the things that people need to consider in in the urgency of this, of getting food production going in your home, no matter where you are, whether you're in a, an apartment or whether you're in a landholding? Uh, good question. Uh, if you if you looked at this like it's a scale, and the scale is it's it's weighted on one side, and then on the and it's weighted down, and the the food that's on one side of the scale it's weighted down is industrial agriculture food. They are telling us right now. Our our president has told us food shortages are coming and offers zero solutions to that. <clears throat> and so we see this scale just sitting on one side. It's, it's plopped down on the ground, and then it's starting to lighten up a little bit because we're running out of food because of the, the nitrogen, the potassium, and the, the NPK model, you know, the fertilizer model that we have gotten addicted to over the last 60 years, which has not done us any good. It's not done us not long term. It's actually working against us right now because we have to use more of it. You know, I heard that guy say 200 pounds per acre. He doesn't want to hurt people's feelings, but 200 pounds per acre is not going to do it. Well, if you see how much they use, it's it's staggering how much they use, and that all winds up in our water. It's it's uh, sanctioned pollution is what it is, because we have to have food. So the scale. Let's say that you live in town and you have a patio and then a couple hundred square feet of ground and you are able to grow some tomatoes and you're able to grow some lettuce and a few things. Maybe you can have some rabbits. You don't have to go too crazy because you are not in the position to really have full-scale production, but every calorie that you produce it goes on the other side of the scale. So that one tomato that you produce might be the one that tips it even. And what we wanted to do is we want to see the side of the scale of local production. We want that to go to, right to the ground and stay there. And part, part of what we're seeing out here in the farming world, and I'm a little bit connected more than most, so like, you know how intelligence work, little bits and pieces come in and then they, they congeal in the, in, in the, 
in the area where you collect intelligence. That's kind of how this is working because of our 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 profile and our my uh, my YouTube show that I do. Uh, industrial agriculture is failing right before our eyes. Now you may see huge farms popping up. They were small farms, but they're they're gobbling up the, the farms that are going out of business. They cannot get loans anymore from you know the loaning agencies, USDA or whatever. And this is by design. They want to centralize all this food production. That was the part of the plan. Um, that plan was part of the the situation that I went through back in 2011, which was they call that the invasive species plan. Um, they they want to be able to say that any animal that's not native to this part of the country is invasive, you know. And so with that definition, I guess I'm invasive too. And and a lot of the corn that we bring in is invasive. <clears throat> but this is a plan that they've been working on for a long time that's culminated with with Sleepy Joe getting out there and saying, hey, food shortages are coming, and now they're going to try and make it happen. But we're on the other side of the scale, and we're saying, not here, it ain't going to happen. Not if, I'm not going to let you guys do that. I'm not letting you starve my, my citizens. These people belong to me. I have, I have a responsibility to these people as, you know, like the sheepdog class or an oath taker, and I'm not going to let him do that to these people. So what do we have to do? We have to train them. And um, our, our training class is called Anyone Can Farm. And where that came from was when we were struggling with the state in a court of law. I mean, you talked about it yesterday, about them going full retard. They've been going full retard for a while in the ag department. Uh, they were trying to convince the court and the people in the, in the audience that farming is a very intricate, specialized function. And only if you are fully trained should you be even getting anywhere near there. Because you could actually create a pandemic. They actually said this. They said, because you don't know what you're doing in farming, you haven't been to the university to learn how to drink 12 packs. Because of that, you could actually create a, oh, they love to use this word. What is it? Um, uh, I can't think of the word right now, but it, it's a, Oh, too bad, because it's a real good word, and they use it all the time. Uh, it's sort of like a virus, but uh, that's not the word I'm looking for. I'll, I'll think of it, maybe. Um, pathogen, that's the word they like to use. You could create a pathogen, and, you know, the, the audience is supposed to shudder. Oh, no, something, something to be afraid of, a pathogen. Oh, no, a feral pig something to be afraid of, you know. And so they, they tried to say that only the experts should farm, that all these small farms, these uh, backyard flocks of chickens, people gardening, oh, that's dangerous. Saving seeds, danger, danger, danger. 
they actually are saying this, right? And they, oh, collecting rainwater? That's, that's out the door. You can't do that. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to convince people that, you know, leave food production to the experts. And anytime I hear about experts, I don't want to know about experts, honestly. The, the formal class of farming industry has dropped the ball. Uh, we have more fat people in our country because the food is nutrient void. And so they just eat way too much. We have more pollution than ever. Um, farming communities smell bad. Uh, people are poor. Uh, they really can't function unless they bring people in from south of the border. I feel for those people, but it's illegal. So uh, industrial farming is dropping the ball daily. You know, So many farmers are going up. The fix on this really is to put those people back on small farms and let them get out and work and make a good living. Um, factory farming is, it's dying. And a lot of the activity that goes along with factory farming, like farm subsidies, they're taking money from the people and then they're giving it to failing businesses, failing farm businesses. And that's, how does that, you know, if I have a lawn mowing business and I don't get up until noon and then I quit at two and it's failing, should the government take money from my neighbor and give it to me because I don't want to work very hard or I don't want to work smart? No, they shouldn't. So these subsidies, I think, are going to be one of the first things that we see come to an end. And a lot of these factory farms will just cease to exist. It'll free up the land. And we will see the model of, you know, family farms who work hard but make a good living off of 80 acres or 160 acres, send their kids to school. The kids learn a good work ethic. Um, yeah, I think there's an answer here. I think there's a solution. It's right before us, and we just have to understand it a little better. Mark, one of the things I push a lot is not just the small farming, but just, like I say, a lot of just getting agriculture going again. We have 70 million acres currently that is tied up with toxic lawns. And at the same time, when we look at the industrial model, there's about 860 million acres in this nation that are tied up into the corporate agriculture model. That's completely destroyed the land with about 30% of the topsoil destroyed from the Midwest alone. Yep. Where I see a lot of this revolution you're talking about is the reclaiming of the of the lawns, kill the lawn, grow a garden, because we have to build a systemic value again in what growing your food means and taking control of that independence and that sovereignty of putting food on our table. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, I hope someday that you come to my farm. I really do. I, I would really love to, to show you around here. But I think you might be a little disappointed when you pull up from the road because I, I mow my lawn. And uh, I, the reason that we originally started doing that was to provide an area for people to live on the farm. The farm's a nice place to be. But if it's just a hay field, then it's got ticks and other things in there. It, it 
doesn't look good. Uh, I can't really hay it in front. So I do maintain a lawn. And I, I guess I'm old school, brown shoe. Um, I have to have, th you know, so long that I parted my hair one way. I have to. It feels good when I see my lawn looking good. But it's not toxic. It's just it gets rain on it. And I cut it with the mower. Whatever I cut with the mower goes to my livestock. I don't feel good about just cutting it, bagging it, and throwing it someplace. I, I use it for feed. It's really good feed. <clears throat> but I think you sort of open the door to something with that question, Scott, and I, I'm going to take it. I, I think it's we have to understand the creation that we live in. And we don't have to look any further than our own hand. You know, if I look at my hand and then I imagine what that hand looked like when I was four years old, it's not the same. It's not the same hand. There's nothing there that was there when I was four years old. Everything has regenerated out. The, the dead cells slough off and I leave them every place, but it's a different hand. Our farmland that has been destroyed by chemical farming we didn't create it it was it was intricately intricately created and man has done his thing out of greed actually that's why they've gone to this fertilizer model it was out of greed they didn't want to understand the weather they didn't want to understand fertility it was just a quick way of getting a kick out of your your farming operation and then the chemical companies went wild with it because they could make money the applicators went wild because they could make money. And now it's sort of like somebody who took steroids instead of just pumping iron religiously and eating good food. It's not working so well anymore. Uh, they have to take more steroids and, and chemicals and stuff. So we're at a point now where it's not working anymore. <coughs> Excuse me. But we have to understand that this creation is regenerative. If you leave it alone and you put it back in a native species of grass, that fertility will come back. And it doesn't have to be chemical fertility. It'll be long-term fertility. So I'm, I'm kind of on this thing lately, like I'm wondering why I have it in my mind that, hey, I'm only going to live to 90 years old. Why, why do I? And when I think that way, I think all the cells in my body are saying, okay, well, command is saying 90, so we've got to keep regenerating till age 90. And then he's going to check out. He's decided he's going to check out. Like, is that a conscious decision in my mind? I don't know. I'm basing it on, well, my father lived to 94, and I'm basically like him, so maybe... But what if I start saying, I'm going to live to 140 because I really want to. I want to see all my grandkids have kids. I really do. I really like it here. I, I like what I'm doing. I enjoy every day of my life in this environment that we've created. We're on a <clears throat> we're on an 80 acre farm and we've just acquired 80 acres next door to us. <clears throat> so 160 right now and I haven't started working on that land next door but I'm going to and um, what if we 
the land next door was actually abused really, really viciously by the factory farms <clears throat> in the neighborhood. And now I've acquired it. And we just took our hands off of it. And the grass that was over there, it just grew. It just, I could, I could go walk out there and I could like imagine all these little beings that are in the soil saying, oh, thank you. You know, you saved us. It's sort of like I felt like I was on the Wizard of Oz. And it was just from me. But I know there's a lot of organisms out there that really appreciate not being abused with harsh chemicals and liquid manure, you know. So I believe that if we, if we acknowledge this creation that we've been put into is regenerative and just know that it'll bounce back and we'll be able to divide up these, these, this acreage and put really nice families on these and show them how to farm and then we can have communities again. Like we don't really have communities where I live anymore because all the land's been consolidated and the people who lost their their farms, they're kind of bitter. A lot of them are really old anyway. But w we can build community again. This is this is doable. This is easily doable. Uh, last weekend, we had a seed exchange at my farm. It was the second time we did it. The first time we did it, it was just kind of off the cuff. I just said on my on my YouTube show, I just said, anybody who wants to come this weekend, we're going to exchange seeds. If you got them, bring them. If you don't, just come and hang out with us. And we had a big group of people showed up. This weekend, not so good because the weather was really bad. But still, we had 30 people showed. And they're all leaning forward. They're all like, okay, what do you want me to do? What do we, you know, because sitting and listening to Rachel Maddow saying that we're all doomed gets old. It gets old. And a lot of people don't want to hear it. A lot of people just don't feel that in their, at a cellular level. And when somebody comes along with a positive message, like, hey, we can fix this. Heck yeah. Um, people gravitate towards that. Your message is good. It's, it's positive. Like we can do something about this and there's a job for everybody. There's a job for everybody. And you, you move up the chain as you, Oh, acquiring skills. That is so important. If you can't, you know, if you've never dug a fence post hole, get you a fence post hole digger. You'll need it and learn how that works. Learn how to build a corner post, learn how to butcher a chicken, learn how to brood chickens, you know, all the, there's so many things that we can engage on as far as education goes. It's like being a soldier. It's not just shooting guns. It's how do you dig a latrine? You know, how do you fill a sandbag? How do you fortify a position? That's a good one. I use that all the time. We can always fortify our position. I fully agree. It's moving away from the what I refer to more and more lately, the the promise of convenience. Convenience is really the death of society. And they've done this very, very well. And they've kind of inculcated this into a generation that tends to look at this idea of a universal basic income, being freed from work, pursuing whatever their interests are. But everything revolves around this digital space, which in the end of the day produces nothing. And even those that are 
and I say this frequently, even when you create software and you're creating that sort of digital space, there's nothing that's sustainable in there or lasting because it, it gets destroyed or remade or forgotten. Mm. Uh, simple example is just looking back on one of the primary you know, languages of computers, which was Cobalt, and you can't find a Cobalt programmer anymore because Cobalt's no longer used. It's, it's a dead language, and yet people spent their entire life doing that. Not, this, not the same with farming, because the techniques that are used, whether it's in a small garden or a farm, are legacy. It's, we're actually trying to go back to go forward. We're trying to learn the ancient ways as much as we can, because there was so much wisdom there, and at the same time, so much is lost. Oh, right on. Uh, I never got really very interested in the, the software end of things. It just didn't interest me. I was more into the hardware end of things. So I have tools that came from my grandfather that you know wound up at my parents' house when my grandparents passed away. And then when my parents passed away, they wound up here. And I display them proudly and I use them and they will be passed on to my kids. Uh, a, a lot of the fluff of convenient modern day living is fluff. And it's, you know, it's more hay, wood and stubble than even my grandparents' tools. It, you know, even, and I realize that those are hay, wood and stubble. Someday they will mean nothing to me when I leave this earth. But they will mean something to the generation behind me. So pretty much what you're saying, you're swinging the door open for me to say it is paramount that we prepare our children and our grandchildren to take this when we leave. Paramount. That is that is our, our duty and responsibility. It's sort of like when we were active duty, we're always training our replacement because we could be gone. We could, you know, get, get a notification, get on this, uh, get on this truck. You're no longer here. Get on this helicopter. You're not here anymore or something worse could happen and you're not here anymore. So I am constantly preparing my children and this property too. this property is, is, is my legacy. I may not have a million dollars in the bank, but that's kind of, uh, that's not real secure either. Those million dollars might not feed me where this chunk of property here and the systems that we've put together and the understanding that we have working with this property, uh, I could be gone, but somebody else can take it over and it will still generate life. Now, the, the, in some ways, this is a kind of a broad statement, but the business we were in before it was a business of do it our way or you're going to die. It's a death business, you know. Uh, and you have to get away from that and you have to be more of, uh, you know, the, the story of Adam and Eve. I'm not here to say that's true, but it's a good story. It's a good story. It's a real good story. There's a lot to learn from that. doesn't matter if it's true, right? It's a good story. And when we take up a piece of land, whether it's uh, your property in town, you know, you may have a backyard, or it's just your your porch, um, 
and you start to steward that, you're fulfilling your destiny, whether you know it or not. And when people start to do that, their lives change. My life has completely changed. I could not get really into the killing business. Um, I stayed with the military for 20 years because of the people, it was mostly. Uh, but I, I've just come to learn in the last few years what that feeling is when I stand near some of the equipment that I used to take care of. I, I, I stood near a B-52 not too long ago at a museum, and it was a real uneasy feeling, like a shark that was going to turn on me. And it's, it was somehow comforting, but now I've realized that, that the purpose of that is not what I want to be about anymore. You know, I know it pre preserves it preserves freedom through superior firepower and all that stuff. I know that, but uh, there's something completely different in a piece of property and a system and me being plugged into it really intimately uh, and being part of that life system. There's a I don't know. There's an awareness that comes from that. Uh, I'm much more alive at 62 than I was at 40, way more alive. And that's probably why I want to live to 140. I think I will. It sounds like a good goal. Mark, as we kind of close this up, what are your words of advice to people right now that are concerned about the food issue? That it doesn't matter where they're living. They're trying to decide how to prepare for going forward here and alleviate some of the fear and take control of their life. Well, I guess there's three things. Uh, the food shortage, it's real. Uh, they are working hard to create a food shortage for us um, because they want to bring us into austerity measures and it's they're going to create chaos and try to get the order that they want out of that. It's nothing new. So short term, get yourself, you know, prepare for a storm. You have a raincoat in the closet and it may not be raining, but it's there. So do a little extra shopping and get some stuff laid in, which just makes good sense. I mean, you should have done that before Sleepy Joe said that there was going to be a food shortage. You should be there. You should have a pantry. You should have, you know, they say six months, but I say it's not hard to lay in a, a year's worth of food, especially if you get used to eating not such good stuff. You'd be surprised when you really get hungry what looks good. So that's like the short-term thing. And a person could do that 10 minutes after they hear this, they could just drive out, get the rice and beans. There's lots of information out there about what you should get and then secure that. But then start looking at a different way of life, a more sustainable, more um, resilient and acknowledging the regenerative nature of the world that we live in. And there's going to be people that hear this and they're saying, hey, this is this is what I'm supposed to hear. I was supposed to hear this this because there's no coincidences. And they're going to say, okay, what I'm on board with this message. What do I do? So for me, I mean, a lot of your people are Christians. And so they understand mission orientation. We understand it because of our former career field, our former careers, like we have a mission. And if this is your mission, 
focus on it and show up for duty. Say, what do you want me to do? If you don't know what to do, get with somebody and say, okay, what do you want me to do? What do I need to do? It's sort of like if you showed up at a church and you, you know, a different state and you want to be, you want to be helping there. Okay. Hey, pastor, what do you want me to do? Okay. Well, you're going to park cars for now. Okay. <laughs> I'll park cars. Um, and then, you know, when you, when you learn that, maybe we'll get you spun up on uh, something else, but we're going to need a lot of teachers, Scott. We're this, this technology of food production has been intentionally put in the hands of a few and they've compartmentalized it. And so we have to be an agricultural society that your average guy knows the temperature of a, that you need to keep a baby chick where now it's, it's, it's hidden information. You know, you, you, it's, it's not readily known. I, when I went through school in high school, uh, we did learn, th and I went to a Catholic high, we learned about rotational uh, crop production. I never used it then, but um, I don't think kids learn about that at all anymore. They just learn about, like, software things. And, and if we get plugged in as trainers, good, then we train. If we get plugged in as hey, I have to get myself trained up, then do that if you feel like that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, and then we can pass this on to our our children. I'm involved with a homeschool group here. They just recently asked me if I'd help. And uh, we're going to we got a lot of material, lots of material, because agriculture is it's vast. It's very, very vast. And, and I know probably about 10% of what there is to know. And I'm learning every day. I love learning about this career field. It's, it is so much fun. And the fellowship with other people that are saying, Hey, yeah, I want to do that. It, you can't beat it. You just can't beat it. There's no gloom and doom. There's always mountains to climb and, and victories being made on the other side and lots of smiles, lots of laughter. It's, it's great. I highly, highly recommend it. That's awesome. And I, I agree. Point in time where we're transitioning and necessarily transitioning literally to go back, to go forward. Yeah. Mark, we always close with a prayer. If it's okay, we'll do a prayer. That'd be great. Father, we just thank you for this time we've come together. And once again, just to reflect deeply on the task before us to literally step away from the world of convenience and to go back to the fulfilling role of taking responsibility for the land and, and all the gifts that you give. We're reminded in Deuteronomy 8.10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall, shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So, Father, we just pray that the inspirations of people like Mark and, and all that he does can continue to inspire people to be the stewards of the land and to once again return to the foundations of the gifts and the bounties that you've given. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, really has. And I will take you up on your offer at some point to come visit the farm. There's no question. Oh, that would be good. That would be good. I'd like to interview you sometime. Uh, we, we go on the radio, uh, not the radio. I call it the radio show, but it's just because I am an old Rush Limbaugh listener, right? And uh, Right. We just go on YouTube 
five, four nights a week at eight o'clock on uh, the Anyone Can Farm Experience. And just talk about farming things and I answer questions and people give their input, but we interview people from time to time. And all of my tribe, I turn them on to you, oh gee, long before the election, long before. Um, because you're, you're ta- Scott, we, we need our officers. We really do. We need them. And, uh, you know, the command structure, it's up to us. Yeah, it is. It really is. A, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting time as we're kind of, there's a lot of parallels to the beginning of this nation in so many ways. And the power that the small agriculture and independence of food gave the colonists to be able to break away from British control, and then the assembly, like you were just starting to get to, of how they had to form their their structures. And logistics was an interesting component because logistics was decentralized in that fight. It wasn't an army, it was the people. And I think we forget that a lot. Oh, yeah. This is a time now that we have to literally get back to basic skills. We've got to be able to have a variety of skills that are not dependent on the mega industrial framework that we're in right now. And that's that's going to be a, a challenge. You know, I, I I gravitated towards Bards and you because you come out and say it. You say this war is real, and you also say trust. Or you say, uh, tempt not a righteous man to pull his sword. I, uh, I wrote that on the door frame of my shop when I first started hearing it because it was so profound to me. We are engaged with an enemy. These are not people like us that are just on the wrong path that we could convert easily. They are not. They see us in a completely different light. And I'm, I'm sure you understand that. But you have to understand this enemy and what they're capable of and the tricks that they use, the spells. They actually use spells. Right? Mm-hmm. A lot of them are, are that way. And they know that food, if they can control the food, that they can control the population. And that, that's their whole thing. They're dead set on destroying the apple of God's eye. That is their whole purpose. And... I gravitate towards you because you come out, come right out and say it. It is real. It is. So learning their ways is so important. Know, know your enemy. Know their tricks. I, I uh, taunt them quite a bit and try to draw them out, like try to draw fire from them. And uh, they're real quiet right now. Real quiet. I really have begun to realize that they really thought this was going to be pretty easy. I believe this. They thought they could just tip the building over or whatever, and we would just all comply. And I think we may have, had it not been for the election of 2016, uh, I think it would have been a harder fight. A lot of people would have gone into the night fairly willingly. And I say that as well, just when I look at the number of people in the military that not only didn't stand up against the injection, but condemn those that did but at the same time what's happened here really is the true spirit of america has been reawakened the, the that patriot spirit and it's amazing through this food issue and the stepping back of the government 
just how many people now are finally starting to say, okay, enough is enough. So as I've, you know, as I've kind of said on the show, and we're in a really interesting place because as they're trying to consolidate land in agriculture, that's why I go back to the 70 million acres of lawn because it's literally the small farm. It's that 50 acre, 80 acre, 10 acre, one acre holding that when turned into productivity, it distributes the, it truly distributes the agriculture model so widely that they can never get hold of it again. And that's because they can have the big holdings, but those holdings will, from all economics assessment I can do, they will eventually implode and because we don't need them. And that's historically, if we go back to Victory Gardens, originally in World War One, and then it was revived under Eleanor Roosevelt in World War Two for Americans to grow their own food. The reason they crushed that program after World War Two is it was too successful. Americans, 46, 48% of Americans had a garden by the end of World War Two, mm. And they were producing in excess of what the national agriculture model was doing. And it was the FDA that was pushing them to stop the program because we were out producing and people weren't buying agriculture products. So that's when, that's when you start looking at the expansion of the suburban model, the introduction of packaged foods, the attack on bacon and lard as a, you know, as a, the fake thing about how it causes heart attacks. Hmm. It attacks on eggs and whole milk, how that, and everything, they attack everything that was coming off of the small farm. Huh. And then it's like, well, we've got something better for you. You can eat, have margarine instead of butter. You can have, you know, pasteurized milk because it's going to be far better for you and safer for you again, because these farmers don't know what they're doing if you're eating raw milk. And we can just go on a list of things. We get to a place where I think that people start to revalue food. Right now, food is just like, what am I going to go to the store and buy? And it's just, uh, you know, what, what, what magic things are going to come in the latest shipment of truckloads of food? But if we can work and get this motivation going from all tiers, whether it's the lawn garden and the urban model, which is kind of the urban homestead model, to kind of that in-between model, which is the resistance chicks model, to your and Kira's model, mm-hmm. we link these things together. We're now feeding a nation. And they have no control. And if you really look at all the things around COVID and the control that they had, it's amazing when you take all of the outside of the people's jobs and corporate, but the compliance to mask and vax, when you take food out of that, yeah, they didn't really have much control at all, but they did have control over restaurants and grocery stores. And if you take those two off the table, they lose about 60% of their power overnight, literally. It's, and that's that to me is like the most strategic hit you can take. It's, I think it's the most radical thing a person can do these days is to grow food. I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Well, Mark, I'm going to let you go. Yeah. Great getting to talk with you, man. Thank you. You too, Scott. And we'll stay in touch. Um, happy to come on your show anytime. So let me know. Great. We'll just keep it off of hot topics for YouTube so you don't get flagged. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think people would just like to... You know, they just like to see you and hear your take on farming, too. That that, that would be very interesting to people. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. You bet. Have a blessed day. We'll talk soon. You too. Bye now. So, Patriots, that was Mark Baker from Baker's Green Acres. He also has another site called 
the anyonecanfarmexperience.com. The anyonecanfarmexperience.com. Great site. Great thing to the whole group to uh, start getting connected to if you aren't already. These are just amazing resources for learning how to farm. And everybody should be farming, even if it's in your backyard. Small, many, many, not so many, kind of small, <laughs> bigger, huge, whatever you want to do. We need everybody growing food. And if that means that you're growing food in a little countertop with a, enough light, do that. If you're growing food in in baskets or, or pots or bags, do that. If you're growing food in your backyard, grow that. Just get going. And it's far greater than just food. It's sowing seeds. It's literally getting your hands in the soil and the connection with God and the greatness he gave us. And it's the spiritual connection of all things and how we're all connected. So thank you for being here tonight. I will be back this evening for Fishers of Men until then or until the next time. Keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. Keep your prayers up, patriots. We have so much going for us right now. An awakening like never before. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God will always win. But we are here in this time, in this place, for such a time as this. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Mission forward. Better get a farm implement in your hand, too, when you do that. So see you tonight for Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time, God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who move forward, and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. 
not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples, it has no rules but one, to win at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. We push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath. <laughs> 